You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's program, constitutional law scholar John Bonifaz, founder of the nonprofit government accountability group Free Speech for People, explains crucial mechanisms to ensure accountability for former President Trump and the Republicans who supported his attempted insurrection and important reforms that must be enacted to repair and protect our democracy going forward. But first, Brad's conversation with Colin P. Clark, an expert in insurgencies and terrorism on how and why the nation must grapple with the emerging threats posed by a new era of domestic terrorism. Warning that the deadly rampage of the Capitol this month may not be an isolated episode. The Department of Homeland Security said publicly for the first time, incredibly enough, that the U.S. faced a growing threat from violent domestic extremists emboldened by the attack. That it took them this long, frankly, to warn about the threat of violent domestic extremists is in in itself uh, a disturbing point of note. That despite so many instances of domestic terrorism in this country in recent years, including at least the most well-known, such as the murder of the... uh, At the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, the murderous attacks on a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, at a Walmart in El Paso in 2019, and the more recent plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan last year, all of which my guest joining me momentarily describes as missed opportunities to take the threat of domestic extremism and terrorism seriously. The department's terrorism alert did not name specific groups that might be behind any future attacks, but it made clear that their motivation would include anger over, quote, the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives. That, of course, a clear reference to the accusations made by President Donald Trump and echoed by right wing groups that the 2020 election was stolen. Federal officials at the DOJ are considering using RICO laws. Those are statutes initially created to round up mafia kingpins in broad conspiracies in order to widen their net against those responsible for the attempted capital insurrection in January. But in the meantime, the dozens of Americans arrested and charged so far for offenses related to the Capitol riot are mostly unaffiliated with existing racist or anti-government extremist groups, according to a new study from the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. The attack, which immediately followed a speech from then-President Trump instructing his followers to fight like hell and march on the Capitol, has required extremism researchers to change their thinking about far-right violence. Though some rioters were affiliated with known right-wing groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, most were simply violent Trump supporters who have repeatedly told investigators that they came to D.C., at Donald Trump's request. 
The Chicago Project researchers found, as they described at The Atlantic this week, quote, a new kind of violent mass movement in which more normal Trump supporters, middle class and in many cases middle aged people without obvious ties to the far right, joined with extremists in an attempt to overturn a presidential election. Of the group formerly accused of breaching the Capitol as of last week, the researchers found that a full 89 percent were unaffiliated with existing right-wing extremist groups. Is that good news or is that bad? It seems there are a lot of people from law enforcement to terrorism researchers who are only just now all of these years into and now past the Trump administration bothering to figure out who these people are, what has made them so angry, what threat they actually pose to the nation, and yes, what to do about any of it. Now, in December, about a month prior to the Trump-incited January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol, we spoke on this program with Colin P. Clark, an intelligence and security consultant who has studied insurgencies in nations around the world going back decades. He warned on this program that Donald Trump was, quote, encouraging his supporters to engage in insurgency-like tactics and behaviors, that there are, quote, real-world consequences to this, and that those listening to Trump and his media organs like Fox News and even farther right-wing media outlets were, were then, quote, living in an alternate universe. He warned that Trump supporters are, quote, going to act on it, and that Trump was creating an atmosphere for insurgency similar to those that he had seen around the world in his years of studying radicalism, extremism, and insurgency. And again, that was a month before the terror attack that we all saw at the Capitol on January 6th. So we have seen some accountability for some of the participants and instigators of the January 6th attack, but... As Clark warned in the New York Times, the trouble may only now be beginning. The storming of the Capitol on January 6 by a rabid mob of Donald Trump supporters, he writes, resulted in a failed insurrection. But for far-right extremists, including anti-government militias, white supremacists, and violent conspiracy theorists, nothing about the insurrection was a failure. Joining us now to explain his new concerns about a new era of far-right violence in the wake of January 6 is, once again, Colin P. Clark, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center, where his research focuses on terrorism, insurgency, and political violence, and is the author of a number of books on terrorism, most recently, After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin P. Clark, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. The uh, uh, Capitol attack failed in preventing the certification of uh, Joe Biden's electoral victory. Hundreds of its participants have been rounded up and charged with potentially more people and charges on the way. Donald Trump is no longer in office after having been impeached and will now stand trial in the Senate for incitement of insurrection at the Capitol. But you charged that the attack on January 6th was anything but a failure. How so? Yeah, well, first of all, not only was it not a failure, at least viewed on the part of the insurrectionists, but it was entirely predictable, as you alluded to in your introduction, uh, 
I wrote a piece in the LA Times in late November, basically saying everything that Trump was doing uh, to include his violent rhetoric mm-hmm. was laying the groundwork for this type of political violence. I had people call me an alarmist, say, you know, the sky is falling. <laughs> this is, you know, people called me a threat inflator. And look, Brad, it doesn't make me feel good that I was right. right. I mean, you know, I'm not sitting here taking a victory lap and saying, oh, you know, how prescient was that? It was obvious to any extremism researcher that that knows what they're talking about that this was the kind of logical conclusion mm-hmm. of where where things were headed. The president was stoking the flames. His enablers in the GOP were, you know, providing that passive support necessary, and he unleashed a you know a, a mob essentially against his own government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so. The, the images that we saw from the Capitol within hours were being used by violent far-right extremists as propaganda to recruit and fundraise on Telegram and on other social media channels. So that, that was what they needed to use as a tool, those photos, those pictures that we've all been showing, that we've all been looking at. Uh, you suggest that that itself now uh, is, a, is a danger moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was their proof of concept moment. These are things that they talk about in their propaganda, but that nobody actually thought mm. the, the government would allow to happen, that they could storm the Capitol, right? People thought it was hyperbole, but the complete lack of security on the day of the event allowed this to happen, and it's really unfortunate uh, because this is going to give the movement momentum, mm-hmm. and it's going to propel the far right well into throughout the next decade. You, your uh, piece in the uh, Times includes this sort of, I, I found this kind of chilling. You write, just as many Americans were motivated to join the U.S. military after the Al-Qaeda attacks of, of uh, September 11 in what they considered an act of patriotism, some may now enlist in anti-government militias or racially motivated ex- extremist groups in an act of reverse patriotism. Now, oddly enough, I suspect that these may sadly be some of the very same similarly politically aligned people, ironically enough. But you see the January 6th attack as sort of a, a, a standalone motivating force akin to the way many saw 9-11, I guess not just in this country, for those who signed up to fight against it, but certainly terrorists around the world who rallied around 9-11. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's that kind of uh, lightning rod event where the world is watching. All eyes were on what was happening in Washington, D.C., Look, these people told us what they were going to do, and then they came down to Washington and did it. Mm-hmm. And the entire time, they were being cheered on by the president. And I mean, he, you know, at first he said he would march up there with them. We all know the president is, you know, not the most courageous. <laughs> uh, you know, President Trump is a bit of a coward. Yeah. Uh, that's well, well documented, in addition to some other, you know, moral shortcomings. But he stoked the flames, and it was this broader network, right? We talk all the time about. We need new laws to do X, Y, and Z. We don't enforce the laws that we have. You know, what happened that day was illegal. Uh, It was insurrection, and so these people need to be held accountable, but also the people that gave them quarter and gave them, you know, support. People, you know, in Congress that were cheering them on from the sidelines and urging them to go do this. And then when they did it, you know, everybody wants to clutch their pearls and say, oh, well, we, we didn't think they'd actually go through with it. You know, I, it's it's just hard to fathom the moral cowardice from certain elements of our Congress 
you know, and we've got people in there that are spouting violent conspiracy theories. And and I want to talk about what to do about it, uh, but a, a few more questions on the event itself and the fallout and what we might expect to see from a new group of, of people you know, who are energized by this, I guess, uh, after that attack at the Capitol and then the ultimate disappointment for many of them on Inauguration Day on January 20, uh, particularly by the QAnon conspiracy folks who are disappointed that Trump's grand scheme to round up Democrats and deep staters and have them executed for treason, that that all did not come to pass as they were long promised by this mysterious Q person, uh, the researchers have reported that there was an effort by even farther right wing neo-Nazis and so forth to use that as an opportunity to recruit some of these folks who were disappointed that uh, the, the Q and on promise never came to pass. And they're trying to now, I guess, recruit those folks into their ranks. Uh, is that what your research uh, sees as well? And does this tact this tactic actually work for these groups to bring in new recruits like that? Yeah, no question. It's been fascinating to watch the reaction from some of the more hardcore elements of the far right. Uh, and and we all know that the far right is a is a fairly broad label. It's a it's a broad umbrella. But when I say the most hardcore elements, I'm talking about racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists. I'm talking about neo Nazis, white supremacists, uh, and they're you know essentially in platforms like Telegram, openly talking about well, how do we recruit you know these QAnon losers? They're they're talking about them in a very derogatory manner very derisively, which shows you, you know, what they really think of them. But they see them as useful idiots. They see them as cannon fodder. And they see them as, you know, uh, bodies that can help gr grow the movement, quite frankly. Mm. I won't uh, repeat all the names that they use because some of them are, are quite offensive. But, you know, they see this as an opportunity to bring folks into the fold. And look, for all those people out there that are saying QAnon has nothing to do with white supremacy, Look at what the, the conspiracy itself advocates for. There is a healthy dose of anti-Semitism involved in the QAnon conspiracy, from George Soros to, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the Zionist-occupied government, the Zog. I, I can go on and on. So it's actually not that much of a far leap mm. to go from believing in QAnon, which is, let, let's be honest, it's a bit beyond the pale, to then believing in uh, your kind of traditional white supremacist, neo-Nazi type type beliefs. I'm curious, Colin Clark, your your book after the your most recent book, After the Caliphate, the Islamic State and Future Terrorist Diaspora, of course, it focuses on the, the, the rise and fall and continuation of ISIS in in some format. But I'm actually curious, last time you were on the show, you discussed that you had never thought you would be talking about insurgent movements in the U.S. this way. How has your work on ISIS and uh, insurgencies elsewhere informed what you are now seeing in, in the U.S.? Well, you know, we see uh, the same type of preparation. We see similar, uh, you know, rhetoric coming out of these groups. I will say I don't think it's possible for an actual insurgency to begin on U.S. soil. I think we see insurgent-like tactics, but a full-blown insurgency is so far-fetched because you know, frankly, unlike many of the cases that I've studied worldwide, the United States has exquisite and world-class security forces. So it would never be able to reach th that point. That said, you know, we could be in store for increased acts of domestic terrorism. 
you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's more, more likely than not. And then there's the issue of legitimacy. The president hammered home for months that the Biden administration was illegitimate. And that's what we see people who I'll call MAGA zealots grasping onto. They're really just saying, you know, this election was stolen. They truly believe it, despite no evidence. And that's, you know, whether whether or not it's real or just perceived in this kind of, you know, fantasy land that many of these folks live in, it's that illegitimacy that could drive people to engage in acts of violence that they perceive as justified. They see themselves as acting as a vanguard on, on part of a broader movement. If you look at the language, and, and I'm reminded of this, uh, I'm talking to you today from, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm. and I live less than a mile from the Tree of Life Synagogue when mm. that attack happened. Yeah. And if you look at the language that Robert Bowers used before he went in and, and committed his deadly terrorist attack, he said, screw your optics, I'm going in. He, he looked at himself as talking to this broader audience and as sacrificing himself as a martyr for this perceived cause, right? There was no one there other than his online echo chamber on Gab. Um, he didn't actually have people that were backing him up in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the same thing you see. Think about the Pizzagate conspiracy. There's the opportunity when people hold these strong beliefs for them to move from beyond the keyboard to real life action. And the result is, unfortunately, deadly violence. Yeah, you note also in your Times op-ed last week that a PBS NewsHour uh, Marist poll found 8% of Americans surveyed said that they supported the insurrection. And now when I first read that number, I thought, oh, good, that's a pretty small number, just 8%. But you cite it, I believe, as actually a dangerously high number of people that might now now be open to further extremist uh, actions. Uh, am I reading that correctly? It does not take uh, more than one or two, as we have seen in recent years, to cause a hell of a lot of damage. You're absolutely right. And, and while you might say 8% is a small number, keep in mind that we live in a country of 328 million people. Mm-hmm. So if 8% of that's 26 million people. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying 26 million people believe in that and would be violent, but terrorism is a numbers game. It always has been. Mm. So even if you take a really, really small fraction of that, number, right? You're still talking about a lot of people that believe in something that has no basis in reality and seem committed, at least on the face of it, to engage in acts of violence to, you know, further their own belief system. And that's something that I think, that's the paradigm change that I've seen in this country that doesn't look familiar to four years ago, before Trump came Mm. to office. He's fundamentally changed those dynamics in a way that are going to impact this country in such a negative way going forward. And, again, people called me alarmist. People called me many other names. Uh, I I got all sorts of hate mail after that uh, op-ed. I'm just out here calling balls and strikes. You know, I'm I'm, I'm agnostic to the violence, Mm -hmm. to to the ideology that motivates the violence. I'm just trying to understand it and, you know, lend my expertise as someone that's been doing this for 20 years as to where I see things going. Mm -hmm. And, Brad, where I see things going is not in a good direction. No, it is not. And there's another uh, thing that I, I'm concerned about uh, that goes along with all of this, and that is, you know, sort of what, what will be done about it, what should be done about it. You note also in your in your Times piece that the Biden administration has announced an initiative aimed at overhauling the government's approach to domestic terrorism. It ordered intelligence agencies to conduct a comprehensive threat assessment of domestic violent extremism and develop the capability to counter extremism and disrupt extremist networks in coordination with federal departments 
overseeing evolving terrorism threats. And while I, you know, read that and, and feel that that's absolutely necessary, uh, and in, in some sense it's shocking that that's the sort of thing that we don't already have in place. With that in mind, are we in danger now of sort of turning the surveillance of uh, foreign jihadists that we put in place in, uh, after 9-11? Are we now in danger of turning those tools directly against domestic American actors? And should we be concerned about that? Yeah, we should. Look, we need to be you know, on guard uh, over the you know, the mistakes that we've made in the past. We need to be transparent about what the plan is or the strategy is going forward. We talk all the time about best practices and lessons learned, but too often we disregard them. With a new administration, we say, you know, let's start, let's throw, throw everything out and start, uh, start from scratch. I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case. Uh, at the same time, some of the lessons we've learned from the last 20 years of fighting Salafi jihadists just don't pertain. You know, I wrote a piece in the Cypher Brief with Bruce Hoffman over the summer where we talked about, you know, for, for the better part of the past two decades, we've been focused on fighting groups and organizations overseas. Now we're concerned with individuals and movements on U.S. soil. So qu quite a big difference there. American citizens have different rights under the law, including First and Second Amendment, than we would be talking about if we were analyzing, a, you know, an ISIS network operating in uh, Syria. So there's a lot of care to take as we figure out what to do next. What I've been heartened by is seeing that the Biden administration understands the sense of urgency. It's tapped some of the most capable people in this country to, to lead the charge, in my opinion, and made this position one that is going to command a lot of weight on the National Security Council. And it's also in touch with experts in the field to, to learn about their own research. And it's empirically driven, right? This isn't just, hey, what's your, what's your swag on this, mm -hmm. right? No, it's what does the data tell you? And we'll act on the data. And that's something that we didn't see under the last administration when we had President Trump talking about, I'm going to designate Antifa as, as a terrorist group. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of what's aboutism that, you know, happens in this space. The most common rebuke I get when I you know, talk about my research on the far right is, what about Antifa? As if it were an equivalent. Look, and again, if Antifa starts killing people, you know, and, and starts, especially in the way that the far right has, they, they need to be treated the same exact way. This isn't a partisan issue. This is terrorism. This is political violence. Whoever is perpetrating it needs to be held accountable. The data shows, and this is overwhelming, that the far right is by far the most violent and dangerous threat to the United States, and it has been for some time. Yeah, it has been, and it's something that I, I remember going back to the uh, very beginning of the uh, uh, Obama presidency, and they put out a, a study from the DHS, Janet Napolitano, those very concerns about far-right extremism and so forth, and the right, the Republicans, got so furious about it that they actually cowed the Obama administration and Napolitano into pulling that report back and basically dissolving the group at DHS that had created it, created that warning that I, I feel like had we, you know, paid more serious attention to that back then, we wouldn't be in this place now. Colin Clark, you said the uh, earlier uh, in our conversation, you said that we have all the laws that we need. We just have to use them, enforce them and so forth. But 
you know, a lot of the the terror laws that we have are against foreign actors. And I've, I've come to learn that we don't actually have domestic terrorism laws in the same way. Is that true? If so, why is that? And do do we need to create such laws? Yeah, so I'll, that'll be the um, the corollary to my earlier statement. We need to enforce the laws we have. And I'm also, frankly, open to at least exploring the possibility of implementing, you know, crafting, devising, implementing uh, new laws. Uh, you're right, we don't have a domestic terrorism statute. That's why the KKK, which most people would recognize as one of the most odious uh, organizations, you know, in human mm-hmm. history, is not classified as a domestic terrorist organization. We don't have that statute that's the equivalent of how we would label al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., as an FTO or foreign terrorist organization. Um, there are concerns that if we had a president uh, that was willing to wield that law in an unethical manner, he could smear and tar his opponents, mm-hmm. his political opponents. Yeah. Um, and again, the president talked about Antifa. There were, you know, uh, musings that he would, uh, if, if he could, he would have, you know, used that label on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's real concern there. I think, you know, a happy medium might be making domestic terrorism a federal crime, because there it's not quite the equivalent of the statute, but at the same time it does give federal law enforcement more tools, more resources to go after these networks on U.S. soil, to charge people for material support, to at least begin kind of picking these groups apart uh, in a way that we've been able to do quite successfully overseas. It's it is a concern, though. I mean, we, we have to do something, obviously. But I, I recall uh, our, our friend uh, Richard uh, Escow, a, uh, a columnist, the host of uh, Zero Hour. Last time he was on the show, we were discussing, I think, the permanent bans on Twitter of Trump and the QAnon folks, etc. Uh, he said, you know, he understood the action, but he was concerned, he said, because these type of tactics against supposed terrorism and so forth always eventually get turned against those on the left he warned and so uh, even as i hear folks on the left pushing for more such laws um i i do think as you note colin it could have easily been turned against the left uh by donald trump when he was in office against blm etc something that we need to keep our eyes on very closely no matter what happens um colin clark uh, i hope you'll stay in touch with us on this You can find uh, him on the Twitters at Cullen P. Clark, and you can find the Sufan Center, where he uh, is a a senior research fellow focusing on terrorism, insurgency, and political violence. They are also on the Twitters at the Sufan Center and, of course, at thesufancenter.org. Colin, great speaking with you today. Um, Look forward to it, I guess, again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Hopefully next time we'll have... uh better things to talk about cheerier anyway uh i'm sure that'll happen thanks colin (laughs) thank you coming up next on broadcast recounted constitutional law expert john boniface on specific reforms and actions that can ensure accountability for former president trump and protect our democracy going forward don't touch that dial
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. The U.S. House Homeland Security Chair accused Donald Trump in a federal lawsuit filed with the NAACP of inciting the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and conspiring with his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and extremist groups to try to prevent Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election that Trump lost to Joe Biden. The lawsuit from Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi is part of an expected wave of litigation over the January 6th riot, according to AP, and is believed to be the first filed by a member of Congress. It seeks unspecified punitive and compensatory damages. Thompson told reporters as he recounted his harrowing experiences, while Trump loyalists broke into the Capitol and disrupted the constitutionally mandated process of certifying the election, quote, all I wanted to do was my job and the insurrection that occurred prevented me from doing that. The U.S. Senate in a fairly lopsided and certainly unprecedented 57 to 43 bipartisan vote found that the disgraced former president was indeed guilty as charged of incitement of insurrection. Though the 14-vote majority, including seven Republicans, was not enough to meet the exceedingly high constitutional bar for conviction in an impeachment, there can be no doubt that the U.S. Senate in any event has found Donald Trump guilty of inciting the violent, deadly attack on the U.S. government itself. But that acquittal is now likely to open the door to fresh legal scrutiny over Trump's actions before and during the siege. Additional suits could be brought by other members of Congress or even by law enforcement officers who were injured while responding to the riot. One Capitol Police officer died during the attack. Two more took their own lives in the days after. And more than 100 were injured and or hospitalized, some of them very seriously. The carefully orchestrated series of events that unfolded at the Save America rally and the storming of the Capitol was no accident or coincidence, the suit charges. It was the intended and foreseeable culmination of a carefully coordinated campaign to interfere with the legal process required to confirm the tally of votes cast in the Electoral College, according to the suit. He says, I feared for my life. Not a day passes that I don't think about this incident, adding that he was, quote, committed to seeing justice brought to this situation. 
He said, this is me and hopefully others having our day in court to address the atrocities of January 6. I trust the better judgment of the courts because obviously Republican members of the Senate could not do what the evidence overwhelmingly presented. The suit, of course, is just the latest, but hopefully not the last legal problem for Donald Trump. New York prosecutors are investigating his financial dealings. New York's attorney general is pursuing a civil investigation into whether Trump's company misstated assets to get bank loans and tax benefits. And a Georgia district attorney is examining his election interference effort there, along with Senator Lindsey Graham's, by the way, in a state where attempting to convince others to fraudulently change election results is a felony punishable by a year in jail. Of course, for the time being, Donald Trump remains the front runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination because Congress failed to disqualify him from running again, as they could have had they voted to convict him during his second impeachment trial. And by the way, even if convicted of a crime, most crimes at least, Trump would still be eligible to run for president anyway, as Eugene Debs did. He headed the uh, Socialist Party of America and he ran for president from prison in 1920, garnering about three and a half percent of the vote at the time. On Saturday, just after a majority in the U.S. Senate found Trump guilty of inciting a riot but fell short of the two thirds vote required to convict and disqualify from office, George Conway, the conservative uh, attorney husband of longtime senior counsel to Trump, Kellyanne Conway, tweeted, I guess it's time to face facts. Neither the Constitution's impeachment mechanism nor Section 4 of the 25th Amendment really works, he said. Section 4 of the 25th Amendment allows a president to be removed from office by his vice president and a majority of the president's cabinet when they determine him or her to be unfit for office. I mean, we've now had two presidential impeachment trials, Conway wrote, in which a grand total of zero witnesses were called and which will have resulted in acquittals despite overwhelming evidence of guilt. And of and for four years, he added, we had a president who, by virtue of his psychological disorders, would have been removed from virtually any other job of significant responsibility. So these mechanisms just don't work, Conway argued, not because they don't make sense on paper, but because too many people charged with carrying them out lacked courage, principle, or both. It sure seems like Conway is right. The mechanisms we have in the U.S. Constitution simply do not seem to work, even in what now seems to be pretty much a worst-case scenario. No president has ever been removed from office by either impeachment or the 25th Amendment, even though three of them have now stood trial four different times in the U.S. Senate. Throughout Trump's two different impeachment trials, both he and his GOP defenders claimed the allegations against him were little more than a partisan witch hunt by Democrats, who, they alleged, had called for Trump's impeachment on the very first day he took office. In fact, it wasn't Democrats who did that. It was an effort led by the nonpartisan, nonprofit government accountability group Free Speech for People, which did so. 
based on the constitutional claim that Trump, as soon as he was sworn in, was immediately in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clauses, which forbid presidents from profiting from their office, as Trump subsequently did for the next four years via his numerous hotels, resorts, and other businesses that he refused to divest from, even as president of the United States. John Boniface is a constitutional legal expert and both the co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org. He formerly served as the executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute. He has written several books on impeachment, including most recently in 2018, The Constitution Demands It, The Case for Impeachment of Donald Trump, written with fellow FSFP attorneys and Constitutional legal scholars themselves, Ron Fine and Ben Clements. John Bonifaz joins us once again today. Welcome back to the broadcast, John. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Good to be with you. And with you, sir. Is uh, So is George Conway right, John? Is the Constitution, as it's currently written, simply not up to the task of doing what needs to be done when it comes to the need to remove and or punish and or disqualify a uh, scofflaw president from office? Well, it certainly demonstrates that those who are sworn to take the oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution in the U.S. Senate are not up to the task, at least for the 43 members of the Republican Sedition Caucus, as John Nichols of the Nation has Mm -hmm. highlighted, who are every it is guilty as as Donald Trump for voting to acquit him despite the overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump incited uh, this insurrection and was guilty as charged. Well, yeah, I guess we can blame Congress, uh, the senators, obviously they are to blame, but you know, in 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 his in a statement explaining his vote to convict, Nebraska's Republican Senator Ben Sass said, "Quote: Congress is a weaker institution than the founders intended. A lot of Republicans talk about restoring Congress's power from an already overaggressive executive branch." He says conservatives regularly denounce executive overreach, but we ought uh, primarily to denounce legislative impotence. He says if Congress can't forcefully respond to an intimidation attack on Article One, the Congress, instigated by, instigated by the head of Article Two, the executive branch, our constitutional balance will be permanently tilted. A weak and timid Congress will increasingly submit to an emboldened and empowered presidency. This institution, he said, needs to respect itself enough to tell the executive that some lines cannot be crossed. Well, John, um, so does it come down to a problem with Congress or a problem with the Constitution? And which one, depending on your answer, if, if either, is easier to course correct at this point somehow? Well, I, I remain of the view that there are those in power who are not abiding by their oaths. I mean, a good example of how the legislative branch defers to the executive branch when, in fact, it should only be engaged in making these decisions on their own is the War Powers Clause of the mm-hmm. Constitution, which makes clear that Congress and only Congress has the power to declare war. But as we know, for decades now, that War Powers Clause has been eroded and ignored, mm-hmm. uh, and the president has assumed the powers of a king with respect to initiating military action. 
so I think there are other areas of, of the Constitution that, again, ensure that we the people are supposed to be represented, but in, in actuality there's this deference to an almighty executive branch, and it is dangerous and needs to be remedied. Well, I agree, but I don't know how to do it. I mean, uh, changing the Constitution itself is a tall order, and changing uh, Congress and the Senate apparently is a tall order. I mean, John, that War Powers Act you mentioned, uh, that issue has been in place now for decades, and, uh, you know, people barely talk about it, much less take action, uh, you know, against their uh, senators and, and Congress people. And by the way, even if they do, the you know the the house uh, in particular has been you know so gerrymandered that it's very difficult to do anything about it. I, I mean, I guess I'm looking at all of these institutions that in some form have failed, and wondering, well, where do we start and how do we start to uh, to change that? Well, I think we start uh, most importantly with respect to protecting our democracy going forward, and that means eliminating the filibuster mm -hmm. so that sweeping reforms that protect our elections and the promise of equality for all in the political process are upheld. Uh, and the only way we're going to see the kinds of reforms that need to be enacted in the first instance is to eliminate the filibusters. The filibusters, we know, requires a 60% majority uh, in the U.S. Senate uh, for anything to pass. Uh, and that is contrary to any basic principle of small-d democracy. So that that's a first order of business for those in the U.S. Senate uh, and, frankly, those in the White House who are pledge, pledging to protect uh, and defend our, our democracy. We need to eliminate the filibuster, and we need to get on with the business of responding uh, to these voter suppression efforts throughout the country that we now see in state legislatures to try to roll us back and disenfranchise mm -hmm. millions of voters. Which, of course, we would be able to do with H.R. 1 uh, and, and uh, Senate Bill 1, both of which the uh, in the For the People Act call for uh, much-needed reforms like getting rid of the gerrymander, uh, congressional gerrymandering, and uh, restoring the Voting Rights Act. But as you say, it's going to require the filibuster to be removed to pass that because Lord knows we can't count on probably any Republican votes at all. And yet we've got Democrats, John, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. They have vowed that they would not end the filibuster, even though the Democrats have the, uh, the, the numbers now, the majority to do so. So. Uh, so that seems like another dead end. I don't know. Am no, I wrong? I, actually, I would I would suggest that it ought not to be a dead end, right? They they make their statements that they don't want to end the filibuster, but then the follow up question is: so what is the political leadership doing with those statements? Are they independent actors who completely have no allegiance whatsoever to their party, to the president, to? the Constitution to democracy, do they have no accountability with any of those forces? I would argue that what we haven't seen that needs to be now exercised is some leadership from the White House, from the Senate leadership, making clear uh, to those two senators that it is not acceptable for them to stand in the way of major reforms that are desperately needed to protect our democracy 
and to protect the promise of free and fair elections for all, and to ensure that our government works for all. And, and they, they don't have a choice on this one. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's the difference here, right? We, we, we somehow uh, look at the other, uh, you know, elements of the Senate, such as Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. and, and they, uh, you know, are, are making outrageous claims about this prior election, baseless claims as Donald Trump made around election fraud. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're rightly challenged by their own caucus. Maybe not enough, but there, mm-hmm. there are voices within their own caucus that have made clear they don't agree with them. But I'm not hearing much in the way of members of the Senate challenging Joe Manchin or Kirsten mm-hmm. Cinema with respect uh, to this question of the filibuster. And I think that's where we are needing to go now. There yeah. needs to be uh, a pushback in a big way, because this filibuster, as President Obama has said, is a relic of, of the Jim Crow era. It needs to be abolished, and it stands in the way of critical reforms that our nation needs including reforms to protect our democracy. So pressing uh, some of those other Democratic senators and the, the, the leadership in the Senate to, in turn, press Manchin and Cinema uh, to do the right thing uh, might be the way to go. Uh, as far as Trump goes, John Bonifaz, um, aside from impeachment and the 25th Amendment in the Constitution, uh, there's another section of the Constitution that has yet come into play in this matter. That would be Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which reads, uh, in pertinent part, no person shall, holding any office under the United States or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States or uh, as a member of any state legislature to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Well, the U.S. Senate has voted. It wasn't enough for impeachment, but a majority has voted that, in fact, Donald Trump uh, did engage in insurrection uh, against the the U.S. government. Can that measure still be used? And if so, uh, what would Congress need to do to accomplish that? Right. So this is a critical next step needed to ensure that this lawless ex-president, who is disqualified from running for office again mm-hmm. based on this provision of the 14th Amendment, that this, in fact, be be implemented, that this be exercised by Congress. All they would need to do is pass a resolution or legislation making clear uh, that that Donald Trump engaged in this insurrection uh, and as such is disqualified uh, from future public office. That would then provide the basis for states around the country to refuse to allow him on the ballot. Mm. Uh, Now, people, you know, might say, well, this is just so anti-democratic, small d. You know, if he wants to run again, he should be able to run again. But there was a reason why, uh, you know, this provision was put into the 14th Mm -hmm. Amendment. Of course, it was a post-Civil War amendment, and and we just had uh, a situation where there are people in the country who had engaged in insurrection, the Confederates, and the view was they were not entitled to hold public office. And someone like Donald Trump, who engages in inciting a violent insurrection against the United States government, mm-hmm. seeking to overthrow his own 
the, the, the election that is ousting him mm-hmm. so that he can stay in power as an autocrat, that is as, as dangerous as allowing the Confederates to hold public office after the Civil War, and he should be treated as such. Uh, and so that kind of resolution ought to be ought to be passed by Congress. But again, we, we get back to the filibuster question. Some people want to say, well, we have the 57 votes to convict, so we just need three more, and surely out of the 43 who voted to quit, there are three more. You know, that you could go into that mathematical uh, kind of debate and determine whether you have 60, but really there is no basis for a 60% requirement in the Senate to exercise this provision of the Constitution. It ought to be a simple majority, 51 senators, who are clearly there and ready to go. Uh, and this comes back to how we have to remove that structural barrier to our democracy, the filibuster. And I would just add, it's not only members of the Senate who need to speak up, but President Biden, who has been up until now claiming that he's not ready to call for the end of the filibuster. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how much longer he needs to wait to see why that barrier needs to come down. But so in any event, to invoke uh, Section 3 of the 14th, it wouldn't, it, it, that, that's it. A resolution by the Senate would be enough with or without the filibuster. You wouldn't have to bring in, for example, the DOJ. They wouldn't have to pass a new law. Uh, the Department of Justice would not have to uh, bring some form of criminal charges. Is that correct? That's correct. There's nothing in the 14th Amendment that requires a criminal indictment. It's, it's, it would be a sense of the Congress in terms of his incitement of the insurrection. If they wanted to make it an actual law, they could do that uh, too. They could go either direction, but it doesn't have to involve the Department uh, of Justice. And then what will happen, as I said, is that states will then uh, follow that guidance from the Congress mm-hmm. and not place Donald Trump on the ballot. I'm sure there will be rogue states that refuse to follow, uh, but of course he needs to be on the ballot. Of, of all the states, nearly all of them, in order to have any prayer for uh, winning the Electoral College vote, assuming we haven't abolished the Electoral College in time for the 2024 election, as we should. And, of course, he would uh, he would uh, challenge that if, if he was uh, you know not placed on the ballot. That would go to the Supreme Court that he has... Uh, packed and stacked that the uh, Democrats then need to respond to as well to expand it, which they can only do if they get rid of the filibuster. So, boy, getting rid of, rid of the filibuster sure does solve a lot of problems, doesn't it? Um, John, uh, when it comes to the uh, criminal aspect of this, uh, I know that uh, you, uh, I think it was right after the January 6th attack, uh, you at Free Speech for People joined a coalition calling for Biden's attorney general designate Merrick Garland to form a task force to look at the attack and to, quote, hold accountable those who have uh, uh, violated the nation's laws. In a similar vein, on Monday at Bradblog.com, our legal analyst Ernie Canning posted an article calling on Garland uh, to prosecute Trump, investigate and prosecute um, under uh, various uh, forms of the federal code, code solicitation to commit a crime of violence, uh, rebellion or insurrection, the seditious conspiracy act, etc. Um, but we've seen the DOJ sort of whiff in the past when it comes to prosecuting, you know, previous presidents. Do you have any sense that Biden's AG would be more inclined to do so than 
say, Biden's AG was after uh, George W. Bush administration? You mean Obama's AG? Obama's AG, uh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. You, I, I, think that, I think this is going to be a major test uh, of the Department of Justice and President Biden's claim uh, that he has made, which is he's going to stay out of these kinds of decisions. He's going to allow the Department of Justice to be independent. If, in fact, that's the case, then it is a test for the Department of Justice and for incoming Attorney General Merrick Garland, assuming he gets confirmed. Uh, and and it's, an, it's a critical test for the rule of law, for our democracy, for our Constitution. If, if there are not serious criminal investigations that get pursued with respect to the federal crimes that Donald Trump and his associates have committed, then we are sending a clear message uh, to both Donald Trump and, and his associates as well as to future uh, people who would come into public office that they, too, can be above the law. They, too, can get away with these kinds of crimes uh, and more. And so we're, we're at that critical juncture here. That's why we've issued a letter, a coalition of organizations, uh, to Merrick Garland as the Attorney General designate, urging that immediately upon his confirmation, he establish a task force to coordinate all federal investigations uh, into the federal crimes that Donald Trump and his associates have uh, committed. And that I think that task force would send a clear signal to people in the Department of Justice and to the U.S. Attorney's Office that we're going to not leave any stone unturned. We are going to ensure that the rule of law applies to this ex-president uh, as well as his associates. And that's a critical message uh, to send. I, I do fear that there are elements in the political sphere who want to you know, effectively move this on, not have any kind of federal criminal investigations of Trump and his associates, and argue somehow that this will be a cloud over the Biden administration if they proceed with those kinds of investigations. But the cloud will really be over the Biden administration if there's a signal sent to the Justice Department that they don't want uh, mm. this kind of enforcement of the law. That will be the cloud, and, and I, I, I urge, and we have been urging uh, the, the Justice Department to stay clear of that uh, and, and to move forward with these criminal investigations. Uh, I concur. Yeah, the cloud would be if he doesn't, uh, if they don't take action. Very quickly, I got like 15 seconds, John. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, someone who is charged with a federal felony can still, even while in jail, run for federal office, except for a violation, I believe, of the Rebellion and Insurrection Act. I think it's 18 U.S. Code uh, Section 2383 that bars them from holding future office. Is that your understanding, and is it uh, particularly important to bring that charge against Trump for that specific reason? Uh, it, it is, and um, and certainly, you know, one of the bases for any kind of of conditioning of of a punishment were he to be found guilty uh, and convicted, it would be barring him. Um, from running again and holding office again. Uh, but, you know, there's so many other federal crimes for which he needs to be investigated. Obstruction of justice, we should not forget, mm. of course, was uh, mm -hmm. laid out very clearly in the Mueller report. We were told repeatedly uh, that Mueller made the decision uh, that, you know, that they could not indict a sitting president. Uh, but 
the door was clearly left open for when he left office. Uh, and, and, and now he's out of office. All the evidence presented from the Mueller report ought to go f- forward in terms of a criminal investigation. The naming of Donald Trump as individual one mm-hmm. in the U.S. attorney's investigation that landed Michael Cohen, his former attorney, in jail yep. for a conspiracy to violate campaign finance law and defraud the United States. Individual one was Donald Trump. Yep. He should be held accountable there. Uh, there. There are many other examples here of federal investigations that need to proceed now that he no longer has that shield, a shield that we didn't agree with. We don't think it's right to say that a sitting president can violate the law left and right and, and get away with it and not be held accountable. But leaving that aside, he's no longer a sitting president, and he doesn't uh, get to have that claim of immunity any longer, uh, and the law ought to catch up and hold him accountable. Couldn't agree more. John Boniface, co-founder, president of freespeechforpeople.org. I suspect we will be talking to you and your uh, your co-authors in The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, those co-authors being Ron Fine and Ben Clements, also of FSFP, uh, about all of this uh, a great deal in the future. That's a long rap sheet that former president has. You can find, uh, of course, Free Speech for People at freespeechforpeople.org. You can find them on the Twitters at FSFP. And you can find John himself there as well. He's a great follow. He is John Bonifaz on the Twitters. Thanks, John. Always great speaking with you, my friend. I suspect we'll do it again soon. Thank you, Brad. Great to talk with you. And that's all for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to terrorism expert Colin P. Clark of the Sufan Center and constitutional law expert John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People. And of course to you for spending part of your day or night with us. You can download any Bradcast anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that service is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to stay completely independent on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Follow and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. And as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. <laughs>